and she said, we will sell weapons to the devil himself if he supports us in our fight for survival. So wow. I think we're, what we're seeing now, for example, with the attacks on Roger Waters, with the attacks on anyone, you know, the Labour Party rank and file in the UK who speaks out against Israel's treatment of Palestinians is an act of desperation that has very little grassroots support and only succeeds because of in the uh, entrenched power of the Israel lobby. Welcome to another episode of Twice Told Tales podcast. Today, we're going to talk to Max Blumenthal, independent journalist and editor and founder of The Gray Zone. Uh, welcome and thank you for accepting our invitation, Max. Good to see you, Satara and Chris. Yep, nice to chat with you officially on this podcast. I'm sorry it's been so long. To, it's, don't take it personally. We're saving the best for last, so this will probably be the episode we get like, cut off of YouTube from. So. All right. Oh, well. we'll see. I mean, if you do, at least it means you matter. It's true. That's true. Except with the mirror florets. It's that kill uh, Ukrainian kill list. I'm not quite sure why you haven't made that list yet. That was a... Maybe because they're really going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> they don't want to have any evidence. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, uh, Sarah, you want to start off the discussion? Yeah. So um, if I mean, if people are uh, familiar with the gray zone, do you know? Uh, your work and uh, I also uh, I'm very grateful that you were one of the very very few independent journalists and alternative media that wanted to reach out to people based in Iran and want to hear um, what is exactly happening in, inside Iran and I think that takes a lot of uh, savviness and that you can see through a lot of propaganda but the question that I want to ask you today is particularly about Zionism and how anti-Semitism is being used to silence uh, basically anyone who's criticizing uh, the Zionist regime or Israel. And I want you to um, like uh, maybe elaborate on that and shed light on uh, what is your experience of that and how USS uh, what's ha been happening on uh, on mainstream media, but also on social uh, on um, like alternative media? Well, in the post-war era in the United States, anti-Semitism began to wane, and paradoxically, the obsession with anti-Semitism began to increase. The baby boom generation whose parents may have experienced some anti-Semitism being kept out of jobs, country clubs, universities. They were able to go to Ivy League schools or at least very good schools. And they formed the basis, some of them did, you know, Alan Dershowitz would be a good example, formed the basis of the Israel lobby Abraham Foxman was actually a baby or a, a small child when he survived the Holocaust. Um, I think he and his family pretended to be Catholic and that affected him psychologically. But by the early 70s, there was 
a reorientation of the definition of anti-Semitism. The concept of the new anti-Semitism had been introduced because how are these groups, you know, B'nai B'rith was becoming the Anti-Defamation League. How are they going to raise money? How are they going to build a strong membership base when anti-Semitism at that point was primarily rooted um, or based among extremely poor Americans in inner cities who were living among Jews uh, who were at the tail end of white before white flight had completely cleared inner cities of the Jewish presence. You know, the institutional anti-Semitism was fading away. So anti-Semitism became a, a new phenomenon about hatred or resentment of Zionism and Israel. And what else was happening at this time? 1967, the 1967 war um, was complemented with a blitzkrieg of propaganda celebrating Israel because for mainstream America or Nixon's America, Israel was one of the only countries scoring a military victory against a restive population while the Vietnamese were on their way towards winkling the U.S. out of their territory, an indigenous peasant army. Meyer um, Degan, the Israeli general, army chief of staff, who had become sort of a legendary figure in the U.S. with his eye patch and his uh, you know, military elan, actually a bloodstained war criminal as we understand him, but the propaganda was different. He actually visited the um, U.S. A U.S. military base in Vietnam to ram home this point that Israel is has the way forward in confronting these third world uh, revolutionary movements. And for Jewish Jewish Americans, that that um, rising generation of Jewish Americans who are no longer confronted with the obstacles of anti-Semitism, uh, Israel was something to be not only proud of but to embrace as a transcendent force that had helped that could, if they were attached to it, could psychologically overcome the shame of the Holocaust when Jews supposedly went like sheep to the slaughter, which is not actually the true Jewish experience of Europe. Over 200,000 Jews actually fought as partisans in the woods, uh, often alongside the Soviet Red Army against Nazi Germany. But this was the, the tale spun out by various uh, Zionist intellectuals. And so this shame uh, and the history of anti-Semitism created a magnetic attachment for many uh, Jews of the baby boomer generation to post-1967 Israel. Post-1967 Israel was also the Israel th th that enjoyed for the first time a special relationship with the United States. France was the previously among the great powers, the major patron of Israel and the U.S. replaced it after 1967. So you have all these factors coming together to create the new anti-Semitism as a political weapon of the Israel lobby, which many Jews, unfortunately, in the United States believed in uh, as uh, believed they were confronted with. They believed that attacks on Israel were attacks on their own community. And they started to see their own community as inseparable from Israel. And, you know, many of them were actually going to the kibbutzim, 
the kibbutzes, uh, the supposedly socialist collective communities in Israel for the first time and in and seeing Israel as almost a progressive force as well. And some would even make Aliyah in their words. They would move to Israel. So the basis was laid at this time. There's the first book called The New Anti-Semitism came out, I think, in 1971 or 1972. It's published under the auspices of the Anti-Defamation League, B'nai B'rith. The basis was laid at this point for using anti-Semitism as a weapon against any critic of Israel. And from a psychological standpoint, anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism were, were seen as one and the same among, uh, I would say, a majority of the uh, American Jewish intelligentsia of that generation. Now we're at a completely different, I would say, yeah, completely different standpoint in Jewish life in the West, uh, in Israeli politics, and in the United States' global orientation toward the, whatever you want to call it, the developing world, the global South. And it's put increasing pressure on the Israel lobby to defend this political project that in the years after the 1967 war was it almost required no explanation to sell their political snake oil and so i think we're what we're seeing now for example with the attacks on roger waters with the attacks on anyone you know the labor party rank and file in the uk who speaks out against Israel's treatment of Palestinians is an act of desperation that has no very little grassroots support and only succeeds because of in the uh, entrenched power of the Israel lobby and Israel's projection of power among the Western elite. It's exclusively among the Western elite. Um, and I, I, it's not even popular among Jews of my generation and younger, but we are irrelevant. The Democratic Party base is practically irrelevant in this debate uh, because of the undemocratic nature of both the Democratic and Republican parties and all parties throughout the West that hold power uh, when it comes to Israel. But reality itself is also like irrelevant because a lot of these things like the claims against Roger Waters are just when you look at them and the, you're just any kind of rational person is just like, is this real? Like, why are you like, he's obviously not doing what you're saying he's doing. It's so obvious. Anyone who knows the wall. So it's like increasingly with all of these things, it's like it's operating in a space that's like it bolstered by its own, I don't know, hegemony or whatever. And it's just kind of can exist in a state of of idiocy or, or it's just so puzzling to me do you, do you can do you have any thoughts on how that how that's we're moving into this space in almost everything where it's like based in like nothing it's just it's it's what the phenomenon you're describing speaks to the wider trend of the complete collapse of confidence that the public has in in mainstream media and in institutions established institutions and it's mainstream media that is conveying you know whether it's reuters ap cnn the lies that have been spun out by netanyahu's israel about 
the leading celebrity threat to their control over the narrative. Deborah Lipstadt, she is uh, regarded as a esteemed Holocaust scholar, scholar of World War II, Europe, the Jews. She led uh, her, her, her most famous work is her takedown of the Holocaust revisionist David Irving. She has a fake position at the State Department uh, on countering anti-Semitism, which is basically a SOP that was created, I think by the, might have, might have been the Bush administration, it was created as a SOP to the Israel lobby. Um, and they just put someone there to whine about attacks on Israel and call them racist, call everyone who criticizes Israel racist. Trump's person was a complete clown. I don't even know where she, she what what she was known for. She was like a real estate agent or something. And she uh, would attack me constantly. And then when I would hit back at her on Twitter, Mike Pompeo actually had to come in and defend her because she <laughs> was having a meltdown. Wow. And she, he said, I stand with a lot, whatever her name was. Deborah Lipstadt's, you know, not someone who's going to get involved on Twitter. She probably doesn't even know what Twitter is. Uh, she's in her, I think she's, it might be in her 80s. But she yes. called Roger Waters an anti-Semite. So the State wow. Department's officially calling him an anti-Semite. Then you have a... Uh, Their definition of anti-Semitism agrees with that because it says if you if you criticize Israel, you're an anti-Semite, right? Well, that's the, the U.S., the I don't... State yeah, the, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. So it's officially, she, she's she's... It's not even a personal opinion. It's now U.S. law. It just depends on when we're going to get that challenged in a court. Because in Georgia, we had that as a BDS law, which was it's been challenged now. So you, you're you're not officially like I don't know. Keir Starmer, the leader of the British Labour Party, who was essentially imposed by the party elite to do away with the legacy of Jeremy Corbyn and purge all Corbynite elements called Roger Waters an anti-Semite. And what he's doing is echoing the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism that conflates Israel with all Jews and therefore defines anti-Semitism as criticism of Israel. And I think there might be a case for Roger to sue Keir Starmer in a British court and challenge the IHRA definition. Yeah. Well, I mean, why, why do you think it's not more offensive to, I know mu Muslims took great offense at being like conflated with ISIS all the time. And I don't, do you find that the Jewish establishment or maybe just like, or is there an outcry that says we are not Israel? I mean, because the thing that I would, I'll just tie this to what you said in the beginning, the thing that I'm aware of knowing a lot of people who are aware of the Jewish experience in America is that before 67, the, Israel was considered like, and the Zionists were considered kind of like a bizarre extremist group that nobody, American Jews didn't want to have anything to do with because they seemed like crazies out in the Middle East. It was not something that they empathized with as, as a whole. And it certainly wasn't considered like an, a Jewish project for American Jews. And it wasn't, it's not like the current myth of the Jewish state makes it seem like it's been this homogenous, glorious state forever back thousands of years but it's not been like that's a very recent phenomenon that people had you know israeli flags in the synagogues and and tied this directly to the religion because the jewish as american jews as far as i understand from first-hand accounts were like we're not 
uh, supporting of Israel at all. And then that 67 war and the propaganda that ensued is where this massive connection, along with the anti-Semitism hysteria, has has churned out what we have today. But uh, yeah, like, I mean, go back to 1948, where w- there there aren't that mi- there isn't that much of a record of these great Jewish communal celebrations in the U.S. over the creation or the the UN vote establishing Israel as a Jewish state. Like right, there isn't right. much I can, you know, if I asked family members of that generation about that, they wouldn't have much to say. I did ask them. They'd say, well, I mean, you know, people were happy, but they couldn't point to any particular celebrations. Um, yeah. Israel between 1948 and 1967, first of all, without, with the exception of six months, it was a straight up military dictatorship over the Palestinian population that existed within Israel's realm. It was a small state that whose survival was still incredibly in question, including to the population of Israel. It had imported a vast population of Mizrahi Jews, Jews from North Africa, who felt completely alienated from the society that had been founded by Ashkenazim, Jews from Europe, who were treated in a racist fashion and who wanted to leave and go back to their homes. It, Israel's uh, popu- student population, the population from the Pale of Settlement, the, you know, the, the, the Eastern European Ashkenazim, they were hated and looked down by the Yekas, the German Jewish population who were part of the second Aliyah uh, that considered themselves sort of aristocracy, you know, the Arthur Ruppins who founded Tel Aviv, they looked down on other white Jews. So the whole society was pitted against itself and it had no connection to the religious, the sites that are now bastions of religious nationalism, like uh, those in Hebron, you know, though the spring where Abraham and Sarah bathed, those were off limits. That was Jordanian territory, and Jews could not visit there. So when you were inducted into the military, the Israeli army, you would go to Masada, uh, which was a secular site of Jewish mass suicide, a kind of Jewish Jonestown, uh, which didn't resonate with religious Jews. And you know, in the United States, Jews were adjusting to life. They were becoming more secular. Some were even intermarrying. They were moving to the suburbs. They were really enjoying themselves. So without 67 and all the attendant propaganda, I don't think Israel would be here today as a Jewish state. There may be, there might've been many Jews who, particularly the North African Jews who might've stayed behind in Palestine. I don't know. But- uh, But they were encouraged to come like by, other Jews like that's pretty openly known now in documents that like that like Jews were bombing Jews in order to like covertly in order to like make the like they were hiding bombs in synagogues in like Morocco and Iraq and they were like creating this this terror that wasn't known to be Jews bombing other Jews it was just made the indigenous Jewish populations as Mazarai Jews very insecure because they felt they were under attack. They didn't know who they, I, they, I guess they assumed it was Muslims. And then they 
just were encouraged like, oh, you're, are you, are you terrified? Come to Israel. And so it was a way of like really cynically getting, uh, getting like, uh, I guess, well, I don't know what you can say, like the lower class Jew, there was like kind of like a, almost like human trafficking, a uh, very devious concept there where you would just terrorize people in order to get them to move somewhere. Yeah, this, I mean, that's what took place in Baghdad. Uh, there was an underground organization that was actually being controlled or used by Israeli intelligence. Yigal Alon, the Israeli general, had a role in it, and they planted bombs in Jewish community centers in Baghdad in order to create a fear factor that would drive the Jewish population to emigrate to Israel, and it succeeded. Uh, they helped collapse Jewish life in Iraq. The they're, they're not anti-Semites, though. They're, <laughs> they're, they're not anti-Semites. No, they're doing it for the good of, of Jews. Um, then you had the um, the uh, Lavon affair. Oh, right. Uh, which is wrongly called the Lavon affair, named for Pinhas Lavon, who was the defense minister of Israel under Ben-Gurion's first government. And he was wrongly blamed for orders given by David Ben-Gurion, who was a fanatical hawk um, who started the war with Egypt early on by ordering attacks on Egyptian barracks uh, in the Gaza Strip, completely unprovoked, but then were using Jewish spies to plant bombs in theaters around Egypt, not necessarily Jewish targets, but we're using Israeli spies to plant bombs in theaters around Egypt in with the explicit goal of blaming these terror attacks on the communists and Muslim Brotherhood in order to provoke a British military intervention in which the British would come and retake control of the Suez Canal because Gamal Abdel Nasser's uh, nationalization of the canal was seen as such a threat to Israel. Egypt was becoming a powerful economy and military force in the region. And it failed. The perpetrators were caught. They were pinpointed as Jews and Egypt's Jewish population was then targeted, fell under the crosshairs thanks to this uh, insane Zionist intervention. And they all had to leave. Today, there are less than 20 Jews in Egypt. Um, the oldest, the community leader of Egypt's Jews died a few years ago. Um, these Jews are all like in their 80s and 90s. And, you know, we can talk about what happened in Lebanon, you know, the but invasion of Lebanon. Liberty. That relates directly to Egypt. And uh, it's it falls into the same category. In addition to the Levant affair, and, and very similarly, it's not it's not such so insane for the Israelis because they are also... The USS Liberty was almost a, a very similar tactic. It was just on a more global scale where they were trying to instigate uh, the U.S. to fight Egypt by by the Israelis pretending to be Egyptian fighters shooting at the USS Liberty. And then the interesting thing of that event, which would be sort of flow into how anti-Semitism or this uh, Israeli influence on the U.S. the U.S. government is the U.S. government let it happen like uh, it was it was they knew that they're that this was happening and they and they basically covered it up so that's what the sailors believe is that they were basically 
<clears throat> sitting ducks that their own government abandoned them, uh, which would yeah. make sense. And what the, the Israelis didn't want them there because they were collecting signals intelligence and they didn't want the U.S. knowing what they were up to with their bombing campaign. This failed to really trigger any real anti-Semitism or any wave of anti-Semitism in the U.S., though, because the entire not because the entire incident was covered up, but just because the American public is not generally anti-Semitic. Um, so. I, I mean, there are actual anti-Semites who've tried to use the Liberty incident to turn the American public against Jews as a whole, but I can like count them on my hand. But in the Middle East, it's a, it was a much more severe situation for the Jewish population. And you can see how Zionism, the presence of Zionism, the, the proliferation of Zionism actually was the greatest threat to Jewish life across the Arab Middle East, or what you would you call West Asia. And it collapsed in a, a, popula a diver you know, diverse Jewish populations from Yemen to Egypt to Morocco to Iraq. Iran's was somehow preserved. Uh, and so what Zionism is in Jewish life is a force that can never be comfortable with Jews existing in, integra in, in integrated fashion in the diaspora. Outside, I mean, I, I, I feel even strange calling it the diaspora as if Israel's some kind of homeland, but outside the uh, amorphous frontiers of Israel, Jewish life can never be safe as long as there is an Israel for the sake of Zionism. It's the message like that kind of making a ghetto, it's like a giant Jewish ghetto in the world instead of allowing the Jewish people to exist amongst everyone like they always have. It's just, it's very, it's a, amazing to me that that doesn't just ring as a red flag to, like, this is. Well, because the contradiction hasn't become extreme enough for most Jews. They can still pretend to be connected to Israel by, you know, buying a tree through the Jewish National Fund or doing some token virtue signaling pro-apartheid act without actually yeah, moving that. there. Uh, for the Jews, at least in the West and in the Middle East, the contradictions exploded pretty quickly. So Netanyahu has tried to drive home the or, or uh, make the contradictions irreconcilable in France, which I'd say out of any country in Western Europe has the strongest contradictions between Jewish life and the French nation. And that's because of the presence of so many um, immigrants and such a large immigrant population from North Africa and the Middle East who see Jews as synonymous with Israel, unfortunately. And yeah. so there was a, an attack on Jewish targets in Paris. I think it was 20, what, 2013, 2012. Um, the, you know, the Charlie Hebdo offices were attacked, but also a kosher supermarket was attacked. And Netanyahu comes in, goes to the major Jewish synagogue in Paris and starts declaring that Jews should move to Israel. But this is the reason yeah. why.
essentially objectively welcoming these attacks while condemning. He led like a parade or something, didn't he, through Paris? I have that visual yes. image. Yeah. And the, the Jews of the who belonged to that synagogue, after Netanyahu was finished speaking, they instead of they they implicitly rejected what he said and sang the French national anthem. They said basically, we're part of France. We're going to stay here. Um, that why why would they want to give up their history and their lives there and move to this fortified ghetto in the Middle East where Jews are more unsafe than anywhere? And isn't it funny? that as soon as the West, including France, including Israel, ended their program of arming and training and supporting jihadist so-called rebels in Syria, those attacks, like the one at the Bataclan Theater in Paris, those attacks that we saw, ISIS attacks throughout Europe that were happening so regularly, waned and are at a point where they scarcely ever happen. Is it some kind of coincidence? So Israel was supporting Syrian jihadists alongside the Gulf states, the Saudis, the Qataris, and NATO states, Turkey, the United States, all the Western uh, European countries of NATO were supporting them. And in doing that, they were inflaming anti-Semitism. ISIS had the same program as Israel, that's why we were calling Israel JSIL or the Jewish state in Israel and the Levant, because ISIS or ISIL had a program called the Extinction of the Gray Zone, where Muslims in the West, to the extent that they could integrate into Western life, own homes and you know found mosques and send their children to uh, local schools and be a part of the community. They were existing in the gray zone, and ISIS's goal was to extinguish the gray zone in order to prompt the Hijra, which is like the Muslim Aliyah, to the caliphate that they controlled in Syria and Iraq um, to force them to take shelter within the caliphate. And that's what the purpose of these terror attacks was, was not only to make Western capitals feel unsafe for non-Muslims, but to actually make Muslims feel so unsafe in those capitals by encouraging the fomentation of far-right politics and far-right violence committed by um, self-described counter-jihadists like Anders Breivik to the point where Muslims felt so unsafe that they would leave. It's, uh, it's a form of Zionism. I mean, I would call it uh, Islamist Zionism. And it's it's a, the same tactics that we were referencing in the beginning that we that were in Morocco or Baghdad or this idea of like yeah precisely yeah so you, you see it reflecting even through France and through now so uh, and and even in Ukraine now we're having a similar so when I say I think we can we can finish up with this like when I say or talk to someone and I say that there are Nazis in Ukraine and then they say no that's a right wing talking point because their MSNBC adult brain uh, can only respond in those kind of ways um could you I know that the gray zone published articles about Israel funding as of Nazis in Ukraine so could you talk a, bit, a little bit about how that relates to this whole narrative and and like 
how it's possible that people can just <clears throat> not realize this or apologize for it and maintain their hysteria about uh, anti-Semitism? Well, Israel's maintained a complex role, played a complex role in Ukraine. I think back to Golda Meir being asked when I think of a trip to Uganda, why she was selling weapons, why Israel was selling weapons to apartheid South Africa. And she said, we will sell weapons to the devil himself if he supports us in our fight for survival. Wow. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if Israel ever really shied away from the apartheid South Africa connection until it became kind of untenable with the yeah. mainstreaming of the anti-apartheid movement. They needed to kind of cover their liberal flank. They were supplying apartheid South Africa with nuclear technology. If it wasn't for Israel, they would not have gotten the bomb. I'm pretty sure that South Africa got the, was able to produce nuclear weapons with the help of Arnon Milhan, who was a Hollywood mogul and a Mossad agent who delivered, arranged the deal for the parts that they needed through Israel. And Milhan was the mentor for Yair Lapid, the son of the late Israeli opposition leader, Tommy Lapid, uh, who became Israeli prime minister. And for years, he actually worked in Hollywood under Milhan. So, the, the, I mean, I'm just going in, I'm kind of going down the rabbit hole, but Israel has had this long relationship with fascist countries, um, the Operation Condor, Israel even played a role, a peripheral role there in Latin America. Uh, Israel supported the Guatemalan quasi-fascist government of Ephraim Rios Mont as it committed genocide against its Mayan population. Rios Mont said that our soldiers, the Israeli commando is the model for our soldiers. And they literally were, they were carrying Uzis. Why? Because in the US had the Boland Amendment in Congress which required executive approval and executive signature to approve covert action. That was when the Democrats in Congress actually had an anti-war wing. And so going through Israel allowed the US to sponsor the Contras in Guatemala or these um, fascistic juntas in Central America without getting presidential approval. And I think what was happening in Ukraine from 2014 on with the consolidation of the Maidan regime was that Israel was kind of pitching in, providing some small arms, including the Tavor rifle, which has replaced the Uzi, to the Ukrainian military. And the Ukrainian military had formally integrated the Azov battalion into its ranks. So they were getting the downstream effect of this arming up. And they started to appear, the Azov battalion, in photographs holding Tavor rifles. You, know, you look at any photo of any Israeli soldier, a conscript, the guys manning a checkpoint, they're all holding Tavor rifles. They're, they have a very unique look. The advantage of them is they have a full <clears throat> rifle barrel, but it, the rifle, the barrel has slid all the way back. So right. it's actually very compact, but it's a very accurate shot. So it's it's not yeah. an Uzi. It's meant for very, it's a, it's a yeah, very unique it's, looking. It's made for urban warfare and <laughs> occupation enforcement. And uh, so Azov guys showed up in photos that caused a minor stir in Israel. And even Haaretz, this liberal publication, which is now completely gung-ho for the Ukraine proxy war, 
was was uh, 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 publishing outrage commentaries about the arming of Nazis, the Azov Battalion was founded by a figure who called for the uh, for for a war against the Semite-led Untermenschen. <laughs> wow. So it's not like a they were covering that up that now you can't talk about this connection. Uh, we don't exactly know what Israel's doing in Ukraine, but they have actually resisted calls by Zelensky to provide advanced weaponry. And Israel doesn't just have advanced weapons. It has AI technology it can share. It has drone technology. Israel invented the drone because uh, it's military, because its society is not able to stomach the loss of large amounts of soldiers and they've refused why because they have a very large russian population they have influential russian oriented legislators and they are effectively at least publicly maintaining neutrality in this conflict um, israel's relationship with russia is also extremely important because of syria israel's gotten freedom to operate in the Syrian airspace, thanks to Russia, whereas Iran and Hezbollah, who are also present in Syria, would like to unleash whatever they can of, of Syria's anti-aircraft cap capacity against Israel. And to the extent that uh, Israel pisses off Moscow, they they lose their ability to strike Damascus at will and attack what they constantly claim are IRGC installations or IRGC armed shipments. I mean, they, they've been hammering the Aleppo and Damascus airports and even preventing humanitarian aid deliveries after this massive earthquake that Syria suffered. So Israel's position vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine is a little more complicated, but I think what we're talking about is that Israel, yes, they have given arms to neo-Nazis, maybe indirectly, in Ukraine, that has happened. Um, they would have no problem with that. From an ideological standpoint, they don't care. It's it, what what the reason that the only thing that's holding them back from sending more weapons to Ukraine is cold, hard geopolitical calculations, especially related to Syria. There are reports just today on uh, Telegram groups that report from the front line Ukraine that they've captured like uh, Israeli commandos, like actually in in the in battle. So, I mean. I, I don't know. Well, there are Israeli volunteers who are Ukrainians who live in Israel who have gone yeah. back to Ukraine after serving in the Israeli military, including special forces veterans who went to fight. That's open. I mean, that, well, that's. We have Ukrainians here that are also participating in the war, like Victoria Newland and Anthony Blinken. What do you, how do you think they. The neocon obsession with fighting Russia here has is do, is influencing America's arm in this uh, this fight. I mean, they're not any more Ukrainian than I am. My part <laughs> of my family comes from a town south of Kiev called Justingrad, Justiningrad, uh, which was depopulated of Jews in about 1918 thanks to a massive pogrom led by Simon Petlura. Simon Petlura, who was the founder of the founding, a founding father of Ukrainian nationalism, 
along with Stepan Bandera. He was killed by a Jewish socialist named Simon Schwartzbad, who was actually acquitted uh, because he so successfully argued in court that his killing was revenge for the massive genocidal pogrom that Petlora led in Justiningrad. And who is Simon Petlora to, to, today to the Maidan regime? He is a hero who is honored with a national holiday and who has parks and streets named after him across Western Ukraine. So for me, knowing that history, my family is, got out of there two years before the pogroms. Um, knowing that history makes me disgusted with the nature of the government in control in Kiev today. For Blinken and Newland, uh, they've obviously given their, they, they've adopted what the Jewish theologian, anti-Zionist Jewish theologian Mark Ellis would call Constantinian Judaism, where their Judaism is contingent on its um, imperial acceptance or, or it's fused with the empire in order to provide them with a place within the hegemonic power structure. And it's run, it, it runs counter to the kind of Judaism that Ellis espouses, which is prophetic Judaism. And so they see Ukraine as part of this imperial project that has been good to them and their family. Um, the transatlantic project, and which includes Germany, which supposedly purged its, you know, the ghosts of the Holocaust and gives, you know, attack boats to Israel to patrol the shores of Gaza. This is good in the view of Blinken and Newland for Judaism. And they don't care if they're Nazis in Ukraine because it's Putin who represents a world order that is anti-democratic, autocratic and right wing and also anti-gay and 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 you know maybe uh, maybe they're anti-semitic i don't know that let's just let's just like blur it all into one thing their understanding is very very their understanding of russia under putin is very convoluted and warped at just as their understanding of ukraine is demented and just being in washington having been around some circles of like you know, people who support liberals who support Ukraine, um, they 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 believe that the presence of Nazism in Ukraine or the reverence for Holocaust collaborators is just non-existent. They they just refuse to accept that it that they just they see it as complete Russian propaganda. If I say anything about it, they're like, "Oh, how could you even say that? That's just Russian propaganda." Like it's wow, not accept it. Wow. Um, but for Blinken and Newland, it's all about power, the power of yeah. the West and transatlanticism. And it's not really about Judaism or their own roots. And if they go and meet uh, Zelensky, well, that's all they need to see to know that there are no Nazis there. Right. He's a Jewish president. He's a very genuine individual. The most important statement that you made in this interview that we were in this conversation that we had was that as far as there is in Israel, um, the Jewish community is not safe anywhere in the world. And so it's not only about uh, Arabs or Muslims. Uh, Israel is a threat actually to 
security and peace across the world, even for the Jewish community, or maybe even more for the Jewish community than any other, anybody else, because they're uh, exploiting or they're abusing Judaism to further their agenda. And they are the ones who are attacking Jews and who are, uh, like we said, like threatening Jews more than anyone else. Uh, and I think it's very important that more people from the Jewish community like yourself uh, are like have the courage to speak out and say and just uh, I mean, there are a lot of uh, Jews who are doing that. But I mean, I think it's very important that we see more people from the Jewish community uh, that speak against Israeli um, crimes, that speak about uh, um, the threat of Zionism and the Israeli regime for the words and it doesn't matter which uh, faith people come from it's a threat for anyone across the world i think definitely and uh <clears throat> it's warped our own countries the the special relationship with israel has prevented uh pro progressive and anti-war politicians from coming to power as we saw with Jer jeremy corbyn who came under attack not only from members of the domestic UK Israel lobby, but from an, a campaign spun out through the Israeli embassy in London. Uh, and it's compromised communities that run counter to the objectives of Israel in the United States. So look at what happened in Tormas Aya, which is a town outside Ramallah, where 400 lunatic settlers rampaged on a pogrom through the town, smashing cars, smashing houses. These were the homes of U.S. citizens when, you know, when when it's like winter time, that town is practically depopulated. In the summer, it's filled with Americans from Michigan, from all across the Palestinian diaspora in the U.S. And the State Department, what did it say? It said, well, we hope Israel will investigate. They did nothing to defend U.S. citizens. And I have a friend here in the U.S. who tried to go visit family in Palestine. He's born in the U.S., Palestinian, but born and not even naturalized. He tried to go visit. He was turned away at the border. And ever since then, he has been on a no-fly list in the US. And his wife wow. was just pulled off a flight on the way to Dubai and interrogated about him with the kids, young kids left on the flight. Wow. This is because of Israeli security coordination with the Department of Homeland Security. There's no other explanation. And so his citizenship is less than mine. And we were both born in the United States because he's Palestinian. Meanwhile, I have a second country. I have no connection to it at all. So I'm denied entry to Israel because I, I was involved with, uh, you know, standing up for Palestinian rights in the U.S. And, I'm, you know, I've been there many times. And then all of a sudden they said, no, you can't come anymore. So I'm denied and turned back to Jordan. So. Yeah, they uh, they have no. Yeah. The, uh, anyway, Modi's in town here in Washington, and Indian TV is reaching out to me, so I'm right. gonna field that interview. And all right, we'll let you go. Uh, okay, good luck. Uh, thanks with so that. much. We'll do this again. Yeah, thanks for coming yeah. on, and uh, everyone, thanks for joining us on another episode of Twice Told Tales. Uh, check out the links in the description. Check out the Gray Zone, and uh, we'll see you again next time.